Welcome to another episode of Tell Me Another, a podcast dedicated to telling good stories from history. Stories of genius and folly, compassion and cruelty. With us today in the studio are our three co-hosts, U.S. Navy Captain John Freeman, Assistant Professor Kelsey Sagstetter, and Lieutenant Mac Anderson. Mac will narrate the remarkable story of Poggio Bracciolini, a Catholic priest and papal scribe who, at the turn of the 15th century, would go off in search of ancient lost manuscripts and make one of the most astonishing discoveries of a European Renaissance. century Europe was a world inhabited by people who looked forward to the future with hope and looked back to the ancient past with a sense of longing and nostalgia. Our story today concerns the life and the adventures of an arguably influential person, the Italian humanist and papal secretary Poggio Bracciolini. In many ways, Poggio's story documents the tensions between religion and heresy, tradition and progress. The story also introduces us to the idea that the Italian Renaissance was less about looking to the future and more about gaining inspiration from the ancient past. While there is some scholarly debate over Poggio's actual contributions to the Renaissance, others, like Stephen Greenblatt, author of The Swerve, How the World Became Modern, argue that Poggio's discovery of an ancient text written by a Roman philosopher 14 centuries prior set off a spark that let the intellectual world on fire for over 300 years. Born in Tuscany in the year 1380, Gianfrancesco Poggio Bracciolini came from neither wealth nor notoriety. And yet, as a quick and efficient student of the Latin language, the young Poggio went off to Florence to receive the education necessary to become a public notary, like his father. While in Florence, his mentor, Giovanni Malpagino taught Poggio the sophisticated art of copying manuscripts. As it turned out, Giovanni's own tutor was the famous Petrarch, who had discovered the letters of the ancient Roman philosopher Cicero and whose poetry spread throughout Europe, helping to inspire the Renaissance. Clearly, Poggio was educated by an elite lineage of scribes. Shortly after completing his studies, Poggio entered into the service of the Bishop of Bari, Quickly rising through the ranks due to his mastery of the written word, Poggio went on to serve Pope Boniface IX. Yet, Poggio soon became disenchanted with the institution of the papacy, which was experiencing one of the most turbulent periods of its long history. Starting in the 1370s and continuing for about 40 years, there was not just one pope in Rome, but another rival pope based in the city of Avignon in southern France. Each pope had his supporters among the monarchs of Catholic Europe. Known generally as the Western or Papal Schism, for years various parties tried to mend this schism by encouraging one or the other pope to resign. Yet politics and fierce factional hatred prevented any real solution. Poggio served Boniface IX and two of his successors in the city of Rome. But then in 1409, the Council of Pisa selected a new pope, Alexander V, to replace the other two and restore unity to the Catholic world. In obedience to the council, Poggio entered the new pope's service even as the other two popes refused to resign. When Alexander died, Poggio served his successor, John XXIII. According to Stephen Greenblatt, Poggio was on hand to write down the pope's words, record his sovereign decisions, craft in elegant Latin his extensive international correspondence. In other words, 
he had access to the Pope's secrets. It is not hard to see why Poggio became disenchanted with papal service. He served a pope who in 1414 was accused by the Council of Constance of heresy, schism, immorality, and simony, which is the selling of ecclesiastical privileges. Seeing the writing on the wall, John XXIII fled Constance disguised as a commoner. The council tried him in absentia and found him guilty on all counts. John XXIII was captured, imprisoned, and eventually died only a few months after his release. Though the council managed to finally reduce the number of popes from three to one, it left Poggio adrift and without a papal benefactor. By now he was in his late thirties and ready to set out on his own. He could still vividly recall his tutor's stories of the great Petrarch. Such stories no doubt inspired him to set out on his own quest to rediscover lost ancient manuscripts. Yet Poggio knew very well that such texts were few and far between. As Greenblatt notes, between the 6th century and the middle of the 8th century, Greek and Latin classics virtually ceased to be copied at all. What had begun as an active campaign to forget had evolved into actual forgetting. The ancient poems, philosophical treatises, and political speeches at one time so threatening and so alluring were no longer in anyone's minds, let alone on anyone's lips. But Poggio remained determined to revive those lost masterpieces. The story is so interesting because of how influential religion was on the political landscape of the day. And Poggio seems like a man on a quest, and it was a quest sparked by the religious turmoil of the period. Uh, I'm actually curious to learn more about this turbulent period in history, uh, the 14th and 15th centuries. Yeah, so to pick up with the religious turmoil... I found something that's useful from uh, the historian Francis Oakley, who points out that the impact of this unprecedented state of affairs was far-reaching and immense. Apart from the spiritual anxiety and distress of conscience that it generated in the minds of thoughtful Christians everywhere, it resulted also in a great deal of administrative confusion and jurisdictional conflict. But here we are, and it's to be noted that more than 100 years before Luther nailed his 95 theses to a church door in Wittenberg, this schism shows a church, a papacy, in crisis. A crisis which raises a pressing question, where, or under whom, is the true church? And that question would finally become so acute that it would explode in the 16th century uh, which saw several answers posed to, answer, uh, to that question. Poggio is also straddling two centuries, the 14th and the 15th. It's maybe helpful to remember what came before him. He's born in the late 14th, so within at least some generational memory, there's the Great Famine of 1315 to 1317. Uh, the Hundred Years' War had begun in 1337. The Battle of Crecy showing the dominant victory of the longbow over the knights, took place in 1346. The Black Death had struck Europe in 1347 to 1351, and depending on who you're reading, the estimates of the, of the death toll were one-third to one-half of the population of Europe. Certainly those effects were being worked out still when he was born. The Lollard movement started around the time he was born, uh, as well as the uh, emergence of the Hussites in Bohemia. 
Jan Hus was burned at the very uh, Council of Constance that Mac mentioned around the time of the Council of Constance also to go back to the Hundred Years War there was the Battle of Agincourt of Shakespeare and Henry V fame helps also to remember what's going to come after um, in 1453, six years before Poggio dies, um, will be the end of the Hundred Years' War and the fall of Constantinople, which was earth-shattering regarding European civilization. So there's a lot going on, and Poggio is part of the intellectual ferment of the Renaissance, a movement which, to take from its name, sought a rebirth, uh, a restoration of uh, the glories of Greco-Roman classical culture, it seeks to retrieve and not so much to innovate. It's not about progress, but about bringing things back after the dark ages that um, I think Bruni had coined, uh, called it the dark ages. Poggio and his, his quest is part of this larger cultural change that's afoot. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that context really helps us understand the man, right? The, the man and the, and the age he was living in. Uh, Kelsey, I wanted to go back to one of your points, this idea that religion had such an influence on politics, but the reverse can also be said during this time. Uh, and that's certainly something that Poggio would have been thinking about. You know, we have to keep in mind the Council of Constance was called by Sigismund of Luxembourg, right? It was not the papacy or the Catholic Church that resolved the Western Schism. It was only when Sigismund had managed to gather all the major powers of Europe together and say, we need to mend this once and for all, that a decision was made to end, effectively, uh, all three existing papacies and place on the throne Martin V. Poggio understood that German and Swiss churches and abbeys were the most likely places to find lost ancient poems, treatises, and speeches. For humanists of the early 15th century, they were the great uncharted territories, especially since they had already combed through many of the church archives of France and Italy. Poggio ventured far and wide. Finally, in what was probably the Abbey of Fulda in central Germany, he made his most astounding discovery. It was a copy of a manuscript written by Titus Lucretius Carus, a Roman philosopher who lived in the first century B.C. This work was titled De Rerum Natura, meaning on the nature of things. Lucretius was a believer in Epicureanism, a philosophy based on the teachings of Epicurus, who lived in Greece around the third century B.C. He taught that the greatest good is to seek modest pleasures and freedom from fear and bodily pain. He claimed pleasure and tranquility could be obtained through knowledge, friendship, and living a virtuous and temperate life. Epicurus lauded the enjoyment of simple pleasures, by which he meant abstaining from sexual and other bodily desires. He counseled that a cheerful poverty is an honorable state. Poggio had rediscovered a number of wondrous ideas completely foreign to 15th century Europe. Lucretius, building on the teachings of Epicurus, theorized about atoms and the ways in which these particles moved and interacted with each other. They were, according to Lucretius, constantly in motion, clashing with one another, coming together to form new shapes, coming apart and recombining again. Lucretius wrote about the first law of thermodynamics 
over 1,800 years prior to the formalization of the theory, arguing that neither creation nor destruction ever had the upper hand. The sum total of matter remained the same, and the balance between the living and the dead would always be restored. Further, Lucretius argued that the random movements of atoms created the world instead of a divine hand. This idea in 15th century Europe was undoubtedly a heretical thought. Given the random nature of these particles, Lucretius felt the world was neither created for humans, nor were humans special. 1,800 years before Darwin, he claimed that all plants and animals were nothing more than products of everlasting experimentation and the movement of particles. Religion, meanwhile, was nothing more than superstition to Lucretius, and religious institutions were invariable, invariably cruel in that they pushed such superstition onto their followers. Clearly, Lucretius touched Poggio deeply after his discovery. Upon visiting the bathhouses of Baden, Germany, Poggio wrote, We are terrified of future catastrophes and are thrown into a continuous state of misery and anxiety. And for fear of becoming miserable, we never cease to be so, always panting for riches and never giving our souls or our bodies a moment's peace. But those who are content with little live day by day and treat any day like a feast day. Beyond excited at his find, Poggio sent a copy of the transcription to his good friend Niccolo de Nicolai, one of the most popular scribes in Florentine society and an avid collector of antiquarian works. Nicolai produced numerous further copies of the text, of which just over 50 still exist today. In this way, Lucretius's ideas traveled from Florence to other parts of Italy and beyond, exercising an influence on the Renaissance and later the Enlightenment. Although the degree to which the more radical ideas of De Rerum Natura influenced the 15th century Italian intellectual society is still up for debate, there is no doubt that the humanists of this time were talking about them. We know that Niccolo Machiavelli personally copied the manuscript and that it probably inspired a major backlash in the late 1400s when a Dominican priest, Griolamo Savonarola, became the ruler of Florence and ordered the so-called bonfire of the vanities. His followers collected sinful objects, things such as mirrors, cosmetics, seductive clothing, instruments, playing cards, sculptures, and of course, paintings of pagan symbols. But finally, they collected the books and the poems of ancient authors to throw them in the fires. While preaching to a crowd of women, Savonarola said, quote, Listen, women, they say that this world is made of atoms, that is, those tiniest of particles that fly through the air. Now laugh, women, at the studies of these learned men. The Florentine Synod expressly prohibited the reading of Lucretius in the schools they ran, calling his work lascivious and wicked and one in which every effort is used to demonstrate the mortality of the soul. Yet attempts to burn or to ban Lucretius failed time and time again, and copies continued to appear in cities like Bologna, Paris, and Venice. As Lucretius's ideas spread, scholars began incorporating them into their own work. One such scholar was the Italian philosopher 
Giordano Bruno, who decided to travel to England, where he hoped to find a more receptive audience than on the continent. He preached to the English that there was no center of the universe at all. Each of the fixed stars observed in the sky is a sun, scattered through limitless space. Many of these are unaccompanied by satellites that revolve around them as the Earth revolves around our sun. The universe, argued Bruno, is not about us, about our behavior or our destiny. We are only a tiny piece of something inconceivably larger. Alas, Bruno received a cool reception in England, and upon returning to Italy, he was arrested by the Inquisition and burned alive. Yet Bruno's work, and therefore parts of Lucretius, lived on. Galileo, too, incorporated Lucretian thought into his work. When called before the Inquisition to answer for his heresy, the Inquisitor stated, quote, If you accept Signor Galileo Galilei's theory, then when you find in the most holy sacrament the objects of touch, sight, taste, etc., characteristic of bread and wine, you will also have to say, according to the same theory, that these characteristics are produced on our senses by very tiny particles. And from this you will have to conclude that in the sacrament there must be substantial parts of bread and wine. Despite multiple attempts to limit the influence of these heretical ideas, these ideas that particles formed the world that we know, the ideas lived on, in large part thanks to the printing press, which allowed texts to be mass-produced and sold anywhere in the world. Thomas Hobbes, Francis Bacon, Isaac Newton, and others either directly quoted or indirectly incorporated parts of Lucretian thought into their works. Closer to home, Thomas Jefferson owned five copies of De Rerum Natura and wrote in a letter to John Adams, quote, I feel, therefore I exist. I feel bodies which are not myself. There are other existences then. I call them matter. I feel them changing place. This gives me motion. Where there is an absence of matter, I call it a void or nothing or immaterial space. On the basis of sensation, of matter and motion, we may erect the fabric of all the certainties we can have or need." End quote. In a letter to a friend who asked Jefferson to name his philosophy, I am, wrote the former president, an Epicurean. Thus, with the discovery of one lost book in 1417, Poggio Bracciolini set off a spark that some could argue lit the intellectual world on fire. Regardless of one's views on just how influential Poggio's discovery was, his discovery of Lucretius, at the very least, helped to inspire a series of intellectuals willing to challenge the conventional wisdom and authority of their time. You know, I studied the Renaissance for a number of years, but I didn't really encounter uh, Poggio's story beyond knowing that he was among a number of book hunters uh, during the Renaissance. And I didn't really dig into that story very much. So I'm curious to know what, what is it about Poggio the man uh, that you found so interesting and compelling for you to want to tell other people about it? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I'd first heard of Poggio when uh, 
likely like other, many others, I read Greenblatt's book. And it was it's for a grad school class on the history of modernization theory. Uh, and Greenblatt was kind of used as a foil to those other scholars who say uh, the rise of the West paradigm needs to be broken down, right? And Greenblatt was kind of a perfect example of someone arguing well, this is how the West became modern, because of men like Poggio, right? A, a very bold claim. And so while I, I was and I am critical of, of Greenblatt's portrayal of European modernization, I found Poggio the man to be one of the most interesting characters I had read about uh, recently. You know, he seems and seemed idealistic, nostalgic, in a way almost a, a tragic hero of sorts who is left astrewn by his by his papal benefactors um, and spends time thinking about what actually matters in life and what he wanted out of life, what he wanted his friends to have out of life. Uh, and so certainly the, the tragic hero story um, kind of appealed to me. And then as I started to do more research, I came across a really great book by William Shepard, written in 1837. It's, uh, I think, from my understanding, the first biography of Poggio. And, you know, Shepard dives really into Poggio the man, unlike Greenblatt or unlike others, focusing on his own motivations and his relationship with the church. Uh, and so that continued to spark my interest. You know, we see in, in Shepard's book, Poggio actively arguing against the the greed and the corruption uh, that he had seen as papal secretary uh, regarding all, all these other papal appointments that Poggio points to and says, they aren't qualified. Why, why are, are they getting these jobs? What are we doing here as an institution? Um, and we can see through Shepard's portrayal during the Council of Constance, uh, as Poggio was relieved uh, from all of his official papal duties, he becomes increasingly disenchanted as he has that opportunity to reflect and to step away from the institution to which he had dedicated so much of his life. And so the political intrigue, the lack of leisure time, and just the general melancholy surrounding the papacy is what helps convince Poggio to go out, to discover, to, to try to find something more in life than just service to the church. Uh, and so those two combined really uh, sparked my interest. And then, of course, it's important to note, just as we pointed out that Greenblatt has, has clearly has uh, some biases here, Shepard, interestingly enough, was a Unitarian minister, one of the dissenters in England. And so his motivations, I think, for writing about Poggio's critiques of the Catholic Church may also have played a role in his depiction. So I have yet to really find a, an account that I would say it gives us a, a, a very accurate depiction of Poggio the man, because I think the two kind of principal accounts both have their own sets of biases. Well, maybe you should write that account. <laughs> maybe in a, in a few decades or so I'll get around to it. I'm struck by how dedicated he is to this, the earlier work by Shepard. Um, the only analogy I can think of is the one that uh, Kelsey already mentioned, that of hunting for treasure. And it's a most unusual treasure because he's got no, there's no money in it, right? He's not doing it to, to make some serious bank on this. I guess then also, I, I also envy his sense of discovery, his joy at discovery, his excitement. You know, I think it's too easy for us these days to find anything that we're looking for, at least when it comes to 
to texts, we forget how hard it used to be. No card catalogs, no libraries, no librarians, no Google, nothing. And from what I understand from the swerve too, Poggio didn't really, he wasn't looking for Lucretius. He just knew he had something when he found this manuscript. Yeah, absolutely. He was he was going to these German churches to find something to inspire him. And when he happens upon uh, this uh, manuscript that he found, he realized, okay, this is more than I would have ever expected. I can clearly tell this is something special. And so he really starts taking that time to uh, dedicate to discovering what it was. So we have his, his sense of value also to be thankful for, his erudition to know, to know this is something different. And, and valuable, right? And I think that's another great point to bring up is, is how easy it is for us to forget how knowledge is, is formed, right? And how easily knowledge can be forgotten about. And the fact that men like Poggio and the other book hunters made this their life's mission to find that ancient knowledge and, and revive it so that their contemporaries could share in that, I think is something that, that goes unappreciated so often in, in today's world of Amazon and, and, and uh, online ebooks and uh, things that make it so easy for us. We forget, like you said, John, the challenges of finding that knowledge when we didn't have the modern tools available. Yeah, we're in an age of information, but not necessarily knowledge. He didn't know he had found or wasn't looking for Lucretius, but now that we've been talking about Lucretius uh, so much, um, I, I wonder, Kelsey, if you could elaborate more on, on Lucretius and his thought and, and you know what he's bringing from the ancient world into this period. Absolutely. Unfortunately, we don't know very much about Lucretius himself beyond what little we can glean from the actual poem. Uh, we've only got one contemporary reference to Lucretius in a letter that Cicero wrote to his brother, where he agrees with something his brother had previously written to him about the flashes of genius and the craftsmanship that characterize Lucretius's poetry. Other biographical data are suspect. They put his birth around 94 BCE and his death in either 54 or 51 BCE. Uh, so we can't say for sure and certain when he lived and died, but we can say with some confidence that he was writing his poem in the middle of the first century BCE. And this is an especially turbulent time in the Roman Republic, and in a lot of ways it actually mirrors the chaos that was going on in the 14th and 15th centuries when Poggio was conducting his research. He would have seen, if he was in fact born in the early uh, first century BCE, he would have seen Marius and Sulla both march on Rome in turn and take over the city. And in the name of restoring the Republic, slaughtered thousands of their own citizens. He would have lived through all of that. That would have been the background to his childhood. In his formative years, he would have been a teenager when Julius Caesar was conducting his genocidal campaigns in Gaul. 
Epicureanism, by the time Lucretius was writing his poem, was one of the four leading philosophical systems that any aspiring philosophy student had to master. Romans who, against this background that I've just described, uh, who became Epicureans included Cicero's good friend Atticus, with whom he exchanged a number of letters that we still have extant, and Cassius, one of the later assassins of Julius Caesar. So it's, it's easy and it's attractive to think that Lucretius turning to Epicureanism is a trend amongst Roman intelligentsia, and I think probably in response to the political turmoil that we were just discussing. So, Kelsey, we've heard about Lucretius's inspirations, but did Lucretius inspire anyone in his own time, or what are your thoughts on this, uh, this debate of whether Lucretius was as impactful as some have said? That's an interesting question because in his own time, Lucretius seems to have been admired by the writers of the late Republic and the early Empire. He is mentioned by Virgil in his poem called The Georgics, and it's a didactic poem. It's heavily in Lucretius's debt. Virgil says, happy he was who was able to know the causes of things, and that's a direct reference to Lucretius, and who trampled beneath his feet all fears, inexorable fate, and the roar of devouring hell. So Virgil is kind of encapsulating some of the major themes of Lucretius's work there. But unfortunately, he suffered something of a character assassination by the Latin patristic authors like Lactantius, and he got the label in later times after his rediscovery in particular as an atheist, and this was a black mark against him in a lot of people's books. So we see then Kelsey Lucretius's uh inspirations or uh, influence, rather, uh, among his peers. Uh, and then, John, I know you have some serious problems with how Greenblatt portrays his influence among uh, Poggio's contemporaries. What, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, as far as the uh, impact that Poggio's discovery of Lucretius and then Lucretius's thought itself has influenced other thinkers and as to whether or not it was how the world became modern, which is the subtitle of the swerve. I think uh, Greenblatt overstates the case. Bruno was influenced at least as much by figures such as uh, Nicholas of Cusa, also known as Cusanus, and certainly uh, by uh, Nicholas Copernicus, uh, you know, whose work was published in 1543. As far as Lucretius's um, metaphysical views, or let's say his his use of that idea of the atom. Um, yes, he starts with Lucretius, but then he takes the Lucretian universe and infuses it with the infinite uh, mind of God, which is definitely not a Lucretian idea. Um, there is no spirit or God animating uh, Lucretius's universe. Uh, regarding Montaigne, you know, I think the Stoics and the Peronists had a far greater impact on his thought than Lucretius did, although we know that he read Lucretius and annotated his copy of it. 
As far as the impact on the modern world, uh, well, let's just use the title of the book, and I'd like to point out that there are other swerves besides this one. There is the invention of the printing press, that is the press with movable type in 1439. I've mentioned the fall of Constantinople in 1453. Then there's the uh, world-shattering discovery of the new world, uh, by Columbus, which was, you know, settled exclusively by Europeans. China had ceased its voyages of exploration in 1433, and the Americas fell um, to the sole domination of the Europeans, uh, leaving the Islamic world and, and China out of it. And then, of course, there's the the other swerve into the modern world provided by the Reformation in 15, that begins in 1517. And then, of course, Copernicus's great work, De Revolutionibus, uh, with its heliocentric theory in 1543. So I think the Swerve and Poggio story is part of this larger thing, but it's not the thing that made the world modern. Although, you know, Poggio's story is certainly compelling on its own as just a quest, right, for real knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you brought up a lot of the critiques that we see, whether they're in uh, reviews of Greenblatt's books or some, many of the critiques uh, I heard my, my classmates talk about in, in grad school, this idea that it is just so limited in scope that and the claims are so large that it, it's very hard to, to defend. Um, but tying this more directly back to Poggio uh, and the humanists of his time, you know, there's a, a wonderful article by Ada Palmer at University of Chicago called Reading Lucretius in the Renaissance, uh, published in the Journal of uh, the History of Ideas. And one of the things that Palmer notes is that there's a reason why many of Lucretius's uh, kind of uh, more radical arguments were not picked up by humanists like Poggio or Niccolo Nicolai, right? And what uh, Palmer argues is that humanism, at least in its early stages, was supposed to produce virtuous men who would imbibe in their, their colleagues, their friends, their children, a sense of loyalty, nobility, courage, and patriotism which had made ancient Rome strong. And without which, to these humanists, the modern world would be racked by corruption, by petty ambition, and by cowardly self-interest, many of those same traits that Poggio had seen in the Catholic Church during the Western Schism. And so, to Palmer and, and to others, the idea that Lucretius may have influenced the humanists in many ways holds true, but the idea that they took all of his ideas certainly would not be true, uh, particularly those of the nature of atoms, the lack of a divine power, and the lack of an afterlife. Because to the humanists, while the ideas of Epicureanism, which had come through Lucretius, may have been valuable, may have instilled those virtues, those values they wanted to see in society, things like Adam's, the lack of a, of a divine being, the lack of an afterlife, did not meet their goals of instilling virtues and ideals into society at large, right? And I think ultimately, Looking back on this research process, what I learned most from diving into Poggio's life was to question how we think about the Renaissance as a whole. As we've noted, the term itself means rebirth. And I think that is exactly what many humanists were looking for at the time. 
Far from a progressive, forward-looking movement, the Renaissance was based firmly in the values and the ideals of the past. The men on the leading edge of the movement sought to find ways to instill the character and the values of ancient Rome into their contemporaries. And in the end, I think Poggio's story of discovery shows us that the early stages of the Renaissance and the early stages of humanism itself were multifaceted and complex, filled with men of varying motivations and varying levels of desire to actually shake the system. Thank you for tuning in to our latest episode of Tell Me Another. We hope you liked what you heard and will join us again for our next episode, where we'll bring you the remarkable story of Japan in the 19th century, when it had to choose between the humiliation of opening up to Western trade or the indignities of fighting a losing war against the West. This has been a production of the History Department at the U.S. Naval Academy, located in Annapolis, Maryland. If you enjoy our programs, please let us know as we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at USNA History, and our email is historyproductions-group at usna.edu. For more information about the History Department at the Naval Academy, please visit usna.edu history.